I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Appendix N Book Club. Today we are discussing Frederick Brown's What Mad Universe. And today with me, I have that planet-hopping pulp magazine publisher, or is he actually an Arcturian spy? Hoy! I might actually be a space girl. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And with us as well is blogger and co-author of The Red Man and Others, Angeline B. Adams. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on, Angeline. So, Angeline, one thing we like to kind of start off with is asking people kind of what their history is with gaming. So what's your uh, role-playing game history? I came to role-playing games very much secondhand. I think that like a lot of people, the first time I ever saw anyone playing D&D was whenever I saw E.T. So I didn't mm. know much about it, but it tantalized me. And then later on, I came across a book by Mark Barrowcliffe called The Elfish Gene, Dungeons, Dragons and Growing Up Strange. Now, Barrowcliffe is a British journalist who was writing about how when he was a young boy, D&D just consumed him. He was so passionate about it. But he's looking back on it from the perspective of, oh, no, I gave my whole life to this thing. And I was such a nerd. And I was so socially isolated from everything except that. So I think that it's a bit of a, it's a slightly rueful autobiography. But I took completely the wrong message from it. I thought that that all sounded wonderful. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I didn't like the idea that it would be this very male-only atmosphere or mm. that it might be kind of compensating for not having a big social life beyond it. But the idea of, you know, group storytelling that you could just walk into a room and what would emerge from that room would be something bigger than the table, bigger than the miniatures, bigger than the people involved. That really fascinated me. But at the time, I I had no idea how to really get involved in it because my life as a geek had pretty much all happened online. I met my partner online, who is now my co-author as well. And it was only a couple of years ago when we had a new board game cafe open nearby, Robin's Hobby Cafe in Belfast. And I got a chance to try D&D. I got a chance to try Magic the Gathering. And I realized that it was what I'd hoped for. You know, there's uh, there's such a creativity that comes with it, but also an ingenuity. And that really appealed to me. And as things as things worked out, because of my health, I've kind of been away from that whole world for a while, but I'm really itching to get back into it. Now, you had mentioned that this, you know, you kind of got into this through reading this story. Were you already an avid speculative fiction reader at that time as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I grew up in Narnia, both literally and figuratively, because C.S. Lewis is an author very local to us in East Belfast. And so my mother got me the books whenever I was six, I think. And she told me all about how Lewis had been inspired, both by his own interests in, in medievalism and Christianity, but also by the landscape. You know, my mother would 
you know, my mother could point out the window and say, oh, there's the Hollywood Hills. I come from a little town called Hollywood. And, you know, and that's what he was thinking of when he created Narnia. And I mean, could there be any more potent introduction to fantasy, you know? Wow. Amazing. And, you know, in your in your speculative fiction reading, have you come across any stories that you feel like you would really recommend to somebody who is looking for inspiration for their gaming? I'm actually thinking a lot about Uprooted by Naomi Novik in this regard, because Mm -hmm. what that book does with atmosphere and setting is really extraordinary. And I think that that plays a really big part in, in gaming, because it's not just about what the characters do. It's about being able to transport yourselves to that place and having the place interact with you, not just the creatures that you find there, but you know, the very living world. So I think there could be a lot of inspiration there. So Angeline, I'm seeing a theme here uh, because you mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis and what your grandmother pointed out and now Naomi Novik and in The Red Man also of connection to the land, the terrain, I think is is something that is very much um, something that is core to your experience of, of fantasy writing and fantasy reading, it sounds like. I think that's very true. I'm very interested in the concept of psychogeography. I really love folk horror. And also, I I come from a museum family. My dad was a dialect archivist. He worked at a local folk museum. I didn't know him. He died before I was born. But knowledge of that has played a big part, I think, in my interest in the past and the ways that it's still all around us in, you know, the natural landscape and, you know, the remains of, you know, the the things that previous generations have made. And as somebody who grew up in, um, literally and figuratively in Narnia, um, have you read the Magician's books? And if so, what are your thoughts on those? Uh, is this the, sorry, sorry, I'm blanking here a bit. Which, sorry, which author? Uh, Lev Grossman. Uh, I haven't read the books. I have seen a fair bit of the TV series, though. I was okay. really intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's it's very much a similar a, a similar setup with this 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 boy who's obsessed with Fillory and has been reading the Fillory novels his whole his whole childhood. So I was curious what your thoughts on that were. But cool. So today we are discussing Frederick Brown's What Mad Universe and Angeline. Which edition of the book are you working with? I've got the Bantam edition. It originally came out in 1950. I've got a copy from 1978, and it says that this is actually the original text from the hardback. Very cool. And how about you, Hoy? I have the uh, New England Science Fiction Press uh, Martians and Madness, which collects all four of his science fiction novels. Um, and it's got a Bob Eggleston cover, and you can see that he's actually, I don't know if that's Frederick Brown or just some alien, but he's reading uh, what uh, uh, Martians Go Home the, yeah. <laughs> with the Kelly Freeze cover. So, <laughs> so it's a little meta, which I think is very appropriate with Frederick Brown. Everything's a little meta with Frederick Brown. Yeah, so. I think so as well. Um, and I've got the 1950 paperback that Angeline was referencing um, of What Mad Universe by um, by Bantam Books with the Herman E. Bischoff cover. Um, and it's, you know, it's our protagonist in a suit um, staring at the spa- the woman in her space bikini. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, on the top, it says, was he crazy or had the world gone wild? What mad universe. Um, so <laughs> that's what I'm working with. So before we move on into the library, we're going to take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Prestidigitation. 
prestidigitation. And that word is found on page 66 of my version. And it says he had a little trouble convincing some of them that it wasn't a trick of prestidigitation. And prestidigitation are magic tricks performed as entertainment. And also, I believe by, at least by second edition, it was a zero level spell as well. Right, a cantrip or some sort. A cantrip. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it definitely worked its way into the, the, the TSR D&D universe. There you go. So that's our word of the day. We are now in the library. Um, Angeline, what did you think of What Mad Universe by Frederick Brown? I guess that my first response to it was actually how contemporary it felt because you get thrown right into the fact that Keith Winton is preparing the letter column for the next issue of the magazine that he edits. And so it's all about this relationship, this back and forth between the creators and the readers. And it's a very lively relationship. There's a lot of slang and there's also a lot of opinion flying around. You know, he's got this... Right, you know, he's got this letter writer, Joe Doppelberg, who is a frequent correspondent who he's kind of fed up with. And now this guy is writing to him, really mocking him. And it felt so much like Twitter. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this is so modern. And so something's like I I mean, I have to be honest here and say that I have not read a huge amount of science fiction from this era. And so I wasn't entirely sure what to expect. But that was I find that really engaging, the fact that I recognized the relationships it, the, that right. were going on in the genre so well. Right. The, there's something quintessential about fandom that doesn't change that necessarily. There Hopefully really it was is. not as toxic as it has become in certain situations as it is now. But then again, also the demographic maybe was a little bit more limited. And so there was less opportunities for conflict, um, you know, or at least the obvious demographic. We know that we know now that there were a lot of women fans and, and people of color who were fans, but maybe didn't have the ability to be published in fan letters or, or, you know, be part of the discourse as the way that they are now. But it's funny that you mentioned Twitter, though. So. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, speaking of Twitter, like it's also just a lot easier for fans to engage with the, with, with content creators now than it was in 1950. So it's, it's certainly, um, it's easier to do that now, but it's really cool to see a story that's exploring exactly that. Hoy, what did you think of What Mad Universe? Um, I think like you, I was potentially uh, alert for some, you know, very much the uh, the glibness that we both experienced in um, Martians Go Home and was like, oh, okay, well, you know, there are elements that are, um, you know, dated on the surface level, but I think the attitudes are, are, very, are fairly interesting. Now, obviously, the women don't have as much of a uh, role as they might in a contemporary piece of fiction, but it is very much focused on one character's singular experience. So that to that extent, I didn't miss that as much. We later also come to understand why Betty, the space girl and accomplished editor of, you know, major magazine is sitting in her perfect office. Perfect love stories. Perfect love stories in a, in a space bikini. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, I thought it was it's quite modern for something that is now what, uh, 70 years old, this, this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciated the... I appreciated the sense of jeopardy that was in this book, even though it was nominally a light fiction, right? That, that uh, Frederick Brown's film noir crime novel trap, uh, uh, trappings and his skills in that area were really brought to the fore in this book. So there was a real sense of genuine dread in a lot of the, the, the scenes at night and stuff like that. So I, I really enjoyed it. How about you, Jeff? You know, listeners of this show will know that this is the second Frederick Brown novel that we've read. 
And the first one, uh, Martians Go Home, was hands down the least favorite book I've read in this entire project. I did not like that book at all. So I was walking into What Mad Universe, like really like prepared for, you know, a terrible experience. Uh, And often sometimes, and I've experienced in my life that the level of expectation I have going into something can very much affect my experience of reading it. So because I was so expecting to have such a terrible experience reading this, um, I went into this expecting the worst, and I didn't get that. I actually got a really fun story that was surprisingly compelling that really felt like it was written with a lot of love for the genre and like the world he was working within. You know, there's it, there's a lot of kind of... Um, there's a lot of meta story going on with him talking about the the the, the pulps at the time that he was very much a part of in, in 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 the real world, and you know in the way that I really enjoy say like um, House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects, I, I I love like that Rob Zombie's love for the genre really shines through in films like that, and there's lots of Easter eggs for the fans. I feel like there's something very similar happening in Frederick Brown's What Mad Universe because there's a lot of like inside jokes that are that are told in a way that like if you don't understand it, it's fine. You don't feel like you're left out of the party, but if you do understand it, like you're like, oh, that's really cool. Like for example, the fact that like in this alternate universe, one of the big um, technologies they have is rotomagnetics. And rotomagnetics is one of the things that we that we discovered in uh, Jack Williamson's The Humanoids. And that was something that was written in the pulps just two years prior. So if you're a fan of this fiction, like seeing like a little Easter egg like that is a really kind of fun, exciting thing. And you feel like you're part of this club because you and the author both know like what they're referring to. And if you haven't read it, you just think that Frederick Brown made some random word up and you just keep moving on. Right. So that aspect of it I found very, very enjoyable. Right. And Angelina, I would be interested because you're a professional writer now and you've been working not just with your fiction, but you've been, um, I know that you've had been doing some uh, journalism and feature articles going back at least 10, 15 years, maybe longer. Um, so, Here's us talk about a lot of like, the editing process, also poking yourself to get, get yourself to force yourself to write, all those things like that. So how much did that ring true to you, looking at all that stuff there? Oh, I love that. It was incredibly true. I think actually one of the best decisions that Brown has made here is that he doesn't make Keith into a star writer. He doesn't even make him someone who finds writing terribly easy. He's somebody who has to sweat over it. And I think that that's perhaps more relatable for a lot of writers than we perhaps always want to admit. I mean, I I mean, I know that my partner Remco has a saying, you know, sometimes I think I don't love writing so much as I love having written. And when it's not going well, that's so true. You know, I mean... <laughs> You know, you have your highs and your lows. And so for Keith Winton, he is obviously kind of transitioned into editing because that perhaps comes a bit easier. You know, his, you know, his editorial judgment is obviously good because he's moving up in his career. But whenever he comes into this parallel universe and he effectively has to start again as a writer, what he's doing is he's going back to his drawer stories. He's having to rewrite this stuff from memory, hopefully doing it better this time. But, you know... You do get the sense, I wonder when the wheels would fall off if he had to be in that world for longer, if he ran out of material, would there be a point where he goes, oh no, what do I do now? Right, right. right. 
And um, I read anecdotally that even though Frederick Brown has, was very prolific and had a very strong body of work, that this was something that he struggled with himself, that I heard that he would actually just jump on a bus for like no known destination and ride for like two hours until when he was a block. And then like he'd get off the bus wherever he was and then turn back around. And that's how he sort of got unblocked when he was riding. Yeah, that's something that we saw a lot in Martians Go Home as well, because like in that story, the main character is also a writer and he is super, super blocked. And like he basically I forget exactly what happens, but I think he like gets a camper and like goes out into the desert and like just like like decides that he's just going to hold himself up in this camper in the desert until he gets this novel written. So clearly this is something that not only Frederick Brown really related to, but really wanted to explore quite a bit in his own fiction writing. Now, one thing that I found that this book did really successfully was the building of mystery. You know, I feel like, um, you know, here we've got this protagonist who's thrown into this other dimension, but he doesn't quite realize it at first. There's like there's that scene with the druggist where he puts the coin on the counter and he discovers that like like the kind of coins he had in his pockets are illegal and potentially worth a lot of money on the black market. And then when he sets the second one down, he is like, he is, um, they, they, he's, he's um, accused of being a spy and nearly shot down. So he runs out of the, the, the drugstore. And as a reader, we're just like, whoa, like what's going on there? And the, the answer to that unfolds very slowly throughout as, as the story goes on. But I found the way that that was written to be very um, engaging. What did you think, Angeline? I really like that as well. And he's really clearly drawing on, you know, noir influences. I'm a big fan of film noir. So that's, you know, it's this guy who is in a mysterious and threatening world. It, it's almost as if it's almost like those noir characters who have just come out of prison, you know, mm-hmm. and they have to kind of return to the underworld and figure out who the powers are, who the crime bosses are, what kind of resources they have access to. And, of course, his danger, which also never really subsides throughout the novel, is that he's going to get too comfortable because Although you've got so many changes, you've got literal people from the moon walking around, everything else, in so many ways, the material world is similar. And so he has to worry, is this going to lull me into a false sense of security? Am I going to accidentally come out with something that will reveal I am not from around here? Mm -hmm. And am I going to get shot as an Arcturian spy? Mm -hmm. So we've got here kind of a blending of the noir and the sci-fi. And it sounds like you're saying that you think the film noir blend was really successful. How did you feel about the sci-fi portion of this blend? I enjoyed that a lot as well, actually. I mean, again, because this period of sci-fi isn't something I have such expertise in, no doubt there are things like the rotomagnetic reference, which I'm going to be missing. But it, it, for me, it had an echo of classic science fiction films from that period. You know, there's a sense of, on the one hand, there's this massive threat from Arcturus, but there's also the novelty because in his own world, you know, Keith is waiting for this experimental rocket to Mars to happen. And so I guess that you get that sense of the joy, if that's not an odd word to use, of the time whenever all that achievement seemed to be just ahead of us. You know, I wonder if this is what it was like whenever people were watching the Apollo missions in real life, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, there are these things that, you know, the universe is just within our reach. 
Yeah. And in a way, it's very kind of Black Mirror-ish of Frederick Brown to have written this novel because he wrote this in 1950, but it takes place in 1954. And so, like, he's looking at, you know, technological advances that are just in the very near future, building on what we currently have. And that's sometimes kind of a risky, a risky move to make. But I feel like it paid off. What, did, what do you think, Hoy? Um, I did. And, and that's a good point, because I, I did not um, catch that that was not completely contemporary. That, you know, I mean, we knew it was science fiction, but I did not c- catch that he was literally just writing about like three or four years in the future. Yeah, I know that from the the the, the very first sentence in the story is that news article about the, 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 the crash. Right. And it says the first attempt to send a rocket to the moon in 1954 was a failure. There you go. Um, but I think it is an interesting... Um, to combine both your points, um, it, it was very film noir arose out of a very specific set of circumstances, right? Which is the um, the dark underside to the shiny optimism of having just won World War II, and you know, you know the the beginning of the space age and all that. Um, so underneath it is the the disillusionment and the um, the uh, the you know all that other stuff that goes over there. So. And so I think that that was a really um, prescient for him to actually marry the science fiction part of it and make a film noir science fiction story. Because I don't think anybody had really done that yet, right, at that time. Um, There was straight film noir, there was science fiction, but not film noir science fiction. Um, And so now now we tend to think about, like, the dystopias, uh, especially in the last, you know, four or five years, you know, uh, and certainly YA fiction the last 15, 20 years. That's all just been dystopias, right? Uh, but I think the dystopias are actually kind of less interesting now because they all seem to be kind of the same, <laughs> right? The, the, the YA dystopias. Um, uh, and even dystopias and um, tend to say more about our current day. And science fiction, that's what people have also said. Science fiction says more about our current concerns than any actual real future, right? Yeah. Um, so here is a concern of a person who's coming back and getting settled back into life. And we do find out that Keith is a veteran, right? It's very subtle, but we do find out that he's ultimately, he's a veteran of World War II, right? Along with Joe, the, the thief that he, you know, co-ops to become his, you know, his guide through this underworld. And so on the surface, he's got this very smooth, easy life, but he's seen some darkness, right? Right, right. And so I think that was also very subtly done and, and I think uh, well done there. I don't know what Frederick Brown's experience was during the, you know, those, those periods. I think he was probably a little too old to serve because I think he was born in 1906. Um, but he certainly would have seen all this going on. So I thought that was mm-hmm. fascinating. Uh, and actually, Angelina, at the risk of getting a little um, uh, maybe too personal here, you're, you are from Belfast and you had mentioned this sort of urban paranoia. So I wonder if that also in this description of like getting too comfortable and making the mistakes that was relatable to, you know, stuff that happened in the Troubles and stuff like that? Um, Although it's not my direct experience, I mean, I grew up in a very protected sort of setting, but certainly, I mean, one thing that I think has happened to a lot of people in the Troubles and also since is that there are areas where some people don't feel safe walking, where people don't necessarily want to give themselves away in terms of what their community background is, you know, whether they come from a Protestant or a Catholic background. And on the one hand, while things are infinitely better overall than they were when I was a child, there is also a lot of instability, and particularly now for so many reasons. So we're I think that people my age and older 
we remember how it was before the ceasefire and also since. And so you do pick up on it in books like this in the sense that even if it's not your personal experience, you can imagine very well how, like in this situation, we are told that the misdoubts immediately become this uh, opportunity for crime. You know, the mm. people who already have weapons, who already have a gang structure, they're taking advantage of the fact that it's just pitch blackout. And so, you know, if you don't have that kind of... If you don't, you know, if you don't have any kind of protection, even if you do have protection, you wouldn't venture out. And of course, Keith has no idea about this, you know, so he's like somebody in a way. He's like someone in a foreign city where he doesn't know what the different factions are locally. He doesn't know what's expected. And I mean, I certainly a few years ago, we had friends visiting from the Netherlands because Remco is Dutch and they and the thing is i never want to give the impression that in belfast you know oh visitors they'll go into the wrong place and something bad will happen but in this case there was one place that we wouldn't have advised them to go and they basically when they were on they kind of they went straight to it and whenever we heard the story afterwards we thought well it's we're you know we're very glad that that didn't become you know a big row that you didn't leave with a really bad impression of belfast so yeah, it's an inter it's an interesting thing to bring up, but I think that lots of places have something like this. You know, lots of lots of cities have places where if you don't know the place, you know, you're going to meet somebody, you're going to make mistakes, you're maybe going to get yourself into trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really like the way that they um, that Frederick Brown explores like what is the cost of these things that we're that we're um, subjecting ourselves to. You know, like he literally picks up a book called The Missed Out, Is It Worth It? Um, and and they're talking about how, like, now that they had The Missed Out, which for those of you who are listening who haven't actually read this book, it's literally just like a black cloud that's created from um, coal tar that they just put over all cities at night uh, to protect them from um, being bombed by these aliens, essentially. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, they are now being murdered on mass by by criminals while it's happening but it's preventing the entire city from being exploded uh, and destroyed by aliens and then similarly we have a similar is it worth it kind of discussion with the um, general policy for if you sus suspect somebody is an Arcturian spy you kill them on sight you don't worry about whether or not you're right or you're wrong you just do it because the chance that because the chance that they are an Arcturian spy and they've gotten away is so potentially devastating to society that the breakdown of society to the point where you're killing people on just suspicion is also potentially worth it. Um, or, but at the very least, it's a, it's, a, it's a question that the people in this universe are having to ask themselves. And I mean, obviously, he's writing during the Red Scare, but it's so applicable to all of these other things that we've talked about. I mean, the atmosphere in New York City right after 9-11, um, I'm sure, uh, you know, London in the same situation when they had the bombings there or any of these other places like that. You know, we know ultimately it's probably not worth it, but but it's a real human reaction to decide that, you know, oh, we have to go to these extremes because, you know, otherwise the alternative is worse. Mm hmm. Now, another thing that's interesting about this story is ultimately we find out that the universe that our protagonist in is in is his imagining of what 
his fan uh, of what this this letter writing fans imagined world would be. So we've got kind of multiple levels happening here, which is why the, the which is why Betty Hadley's in her space bikini and when she goes into space she puts transparent plastic over it. <laughs> and it's why the, the aliens are so scary too because like this fan wanted the women to be dressed sexier, he wanted the aliens to be scarier. And here we are in a world where both of those things have come true. And there's also kind of this like Mary Sue version of this um, letter writer who is now like this, like, you know, badass beast traveler, Dopel. Um, yeah. What uh, what were your thoughts on on that aspect of the storyline? Uh, I really love the layeredness of it, you know, because it's perceptions within perceptions. And the fact that, you know, with Dopel, that's, the fact that it's not just, you know, Joe Doppelberg's projection, but Keith's imagined projection, I think that that, set, that speaks to us because we have this whole problem online now where in fandom we have so many arguments, some of them very important and necessary, it's true, but very often we find ourselves arguing with what we assume somebody else thinks. And so there ends up being a kind of meta-argument which... It gets quite difficult to see the real person. And you do wonder also if after all of this is over, after, you know, Keith is able to return to his proper place and time, you do wonder, you know, what happens if he ever runs into Joe Doppelberg? You know, will he see him differently? Will he maybe even have a little compassion for the fact that this guy, I mean, Joe Doppelberg in in his imagining, would be someone who basically has to see himself as a sort of 1950s Tony Stark, you know, beloved by the whole populace, not just a genius, but a genius who can create a robotic assistant whose sentience even he doesn't understand. I mean, <laughs> boy, that's, that's some overcompensating, isn't it? <laughs> and it is telling that we never actually meet Joe Doppelberg. We just see his letter. I mean, we we're talking about like the experience of interacting with people online, right? And then we don't, we don't meet Topel until the very end also, right? So it is like, like, do we ever meet this real person when we're interacting with people online on, you know, Twitter or Facebook, you know, especially with Twitter where you only have 280 characters, right? So, <laughs> um, so I think that's definitely pretty hilarious. Um, and as you say, also a dark mirror too. <laughs> what goes on sure. Also, I think another thing you had mentioned was uh, the writing, also the, the process of like heightening reality. So he was at the beginning, he was always saying like, oh, the artists don't draw the art, the monsters quite scary enough. Like, how can I get them to draw them, you know, a little scarier, uh, you know, um, and is that part of, I mean, I know uh, Remco is the primarily the illustrator, but is that something that uh, you notice when, when you're dealing with writing and are you struggling with, like, how can we make this thing get that effect a little bit more, uh, you know, what I have in my mind, you know, versus what's actually on the page, whether it's as an illustration or in the text? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there are times whenever you know that you need a scene to have a particular effect. And if it isn't, you're thinking okay, so is it because this scene is from the wrong character's point of view? Is it because maybe this incident is happening too early so the stakes aren't high enough yet for there to be real tension? You know, you're, you know, I mean, you're, you do second guess yourself a little, that's true. Jeff, you were about to say? Oh, so I was going to say, uh, so in um, in 1979, when Gary Gygax put out the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide and the list of things that he recommends that you read, it just says Frederick Brown. It doesn't tell you where, what to read, but he recommends that you read some Frederick Brown. So let's go ahead and put ourselves in the alternate dimension 
where Angeline Adams is in 1979 and you picked up this book um, to read because Gary Gygax um, said you should read it for inspiration for your D&D game. Uh, what would be your, um, what would you be thinking about? Um, does, do you feel like this belongs there? Would you be kind of questioning that? I would say it belongs there. I think probably the primary inspiration I would take to pick up on something that we talked about earlier would be keeping the player in the dark because in this case, Keith knows so much about the basic world on which this one is based, but there's also a whole lot that he doesn't know and it's really striking how long it takes him to get that information. So I would think in terms of how do you keep the players interested and engaged while dripping out that information slowly? How do you also make them feel, you want there to be a sense of a win whenever they do something that, you know, that gives you the opportunity to release that information. You know, it has to feel like they earned it, I think. I agree. I think you're right. And I think that each time he does, um, there is that little bit. Like, he just, you know, he meets with Joe and Joe, you know, he realizes, oh, if I give Joe the gun back, you know, um, he maybe he'll develop a little bit of trust here. It's a, a potential risk for me, but it might pay off. Um, and it does pay off, ultimately. Um, so those little rewards and... Um, and so there's a narrative reward here, but as a uh, in the game, yes, and it's so those little wins um, that add up to something cumulatively, and then to the, the the greater goal of you know getting back to his ultimately find out it's not his world, but that's another another story. Uh, yeah. Jeff and, and Jeff, uh, what was your uh, thought on that? One thing that I kind of walked away from this with was the I like I really liked how in this alternate universe since it is based on his imagining of somebody else's imagining of the world, um, there's error on, on, on the moon. And there are like all these like little things that are different, but like little things that are like major on a like physics level. Um, and it was kind of a, a nice reminder to me that, you know, we're playing fantasy games. We're playing science fiction games. Like it's fine if the physics of your world doesn't match the physics of our world. You know, just if if your characters want to go to the moon in your D&D game, maybe in your D&D world, like you don't need to worry about the fact that there's no oxygen. Like maybe they can just go to the moon. Like <laughs> it's it's kind of a nice reminder that we don't have to be um you know, slavish bores to our world's physics unless we are trying to specifically do something that very much feels like it could be in our world. That's that's a different thing. But if you're not, like, it's a nice reminder that you can just free yourself from those shackles. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a, a point of a talk between sort of like what level of groundedness we have and then what is fair play to the reader or the gamer in this case. Mm -hmm. And... um you know, speaking to your fiction, Angelina, it's it's quite realistic, right? It is fantasy, but the the feeling of the the geography and all that is fairly realistic. What was your dividing line uh, that you pick when you sort of do this stuff? I think that we have been quite loose with the world building. I mean, we have really felt that we were unrolling it like a carpet under our characters' feet as we needed them to go. I mean, we're thinking. Obviously, Robert E. Hart has had a lot of influence in that we are also imagining that this is a world, if you like, it's a parallel world to ours. So there's some of the same mythology in their distant past. 
you know, they're in, obviously, Imca comes from a place which is certainly analogous to the north of the Netherlands where Remco is from, but in their world, that area might be a bit bigger, perhaps, uh, perhaps more of, perhaps Doggerland was never flooded by the ice caps melting, you know, so we, what we have done is, we will just tread a fine line between, obviously, a lot of the time we're trying to evoke times and places which our readers will find familiar, but we don't want to back ourselves into a corner where we have defined it so closely that we don't have room to move. I, I, I mean, I remember last year I was working on a sequel, and this is quite an ambitious story. And I was, I find that in my research, I was getting myself very bogged down and stuff like what kind of fruits and vegetables grew in the old world and the new world, you know, in my, you know, medieval analog world, you know, what kind of stuff would they have access to? And at a certain point, I realized, you know, it's not really, it doesn't do to be prescriptive. Yes, there's going to be things where if I suddenly say that Imka has bought herself a Mars bar to eat, that is, go, you know, that is going to be a bit of a problem. And there are things on a more subtle level, like we've had a discussion recently about, you know, do they have access to things like tea? Do they have access to coffee? And what does it, and what does that imply about the production and so on and so forth? So, it's not that we don't think about those things, but there are times whenever you don't want to constrain yourself because, as you say, I mean, what if you what if you do just really want to send the characters to the moon? You know, why are we why are we writing fantasy if we're going to say, well, this has to be exactly like in fourteen ninety two or fifteen ninety one? I do think that's an interesting dilemma for. Um people who are creating settings, particularly in fantasy fantasy settings these days, right? And there is a tendency to want to get um, super, super detailed. And then you get this sniping, like, you know, it's like, well, I am writing a fantasy analog, but yes, because if you have coffee, that implies a an Arabian peninsula, right? And in Africa, right? And if you have tea, that implies an, an India, Ceylon, uh, <laughs> right? Or at least someplace that is tropical in your, in your world, right? Uh, subtropical in your world. Um, and then people were like, well, but no, everything you have is this very Northern European uh, vibe that you're throwing off here. And you, you haven't talked about the rest of that. Um, and uh, I think that's a struggle we have with some other fantasy world building. Um, I think, <laughs> Jeff, you've never had that problem. So that's been, <laughs> you know, in your games that I've played with you. So uh, what do you mean? Of, of having uh, having to worry about like, you know, um, people sniping at you for for uh, like, oh, well, is this, you know, this little thing doesn't seem like it would be in, in a world that Jeff God would create. <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean basically anything can happen in these worlds um and sometimes sometimes though it's a struggle not even with uh ourselves it's a struggle that we perceive with a, a fictional audience member right whether it's a gamer or a writer right and they probably don't even have that problem but we're creating a, a straw man that is going to like say well your story is not plausible because of xyz <laughs> right um, yeah, my D and D game currently has a seventy foot tall Lenin who is uh, Vladimir <laughs> Lenin who is currently uh, gathering up all the giants in the mountains. Uh, so, <laughs> there you go. And it's that's literally. I mean, he's literally a seventy foot tall Vladimir Lenin. It's not like he's not a, a uh, yeah, it's not a <laughs> an analog or anything. There you go. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh man. So is there anything that you feel like would be fun to steal from this story and throw into your games? 
I think you could do a lot with something like the mistoid because it's just this arbitrary uh, limitation being thrown at the characters, you know, where also the implication that that has for risk and reward because we know that Keith gets told whenever he tries to leave the, I'm blanking on the word, there's a hostel where, you know, there are policemen on the door and they say, well, if you go out there, buddy, then it's it's your life, it's your funeral. I mean, what if you... You know, what if you give your players a chance to do something like that? But the thing that they could, you know, achieve if they manage to survive that environment is so high. And the fact that it's it's not just an environmental hazard, but it's a knowledge hazard because even more so than is often the case in gaming, they don't know who or what they're going to meet out there. Mm-hmm. Have you have you read any of the Fafford and Grey Master stories? Uh, bits and pieces, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like the missed out would be something that'd be really interesting in like a Linkmar game. Sure. Yeah. And also in general, I also just love the visual of um street toughs who are like walking arm in arm together with their arms locked together, like tapping uh um uh tapping seeing cane like seeing eye canes. Yeah. Like there's something about that visually that just like cracks me up. Yeah. So I feel like I would want to do that in a Linkmar game. But with that part, this would just be like at dust. Like you can yeah. still kind of see them. Right. <laughs> just it, is very, a uh, it is very kind of clockwork orange too, though. I think. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. But, you know, when you think about all these sort of legendary um, New York street gangs of the 19th century, you know, the, the Dead Rabbits and all these other like very colorful gangs. And, you yeah. know, what's another gang of like the Nighters? I think that's actually. Um, so I think the atmospherics, I think, is to your point. I think the atmospherics of the missed out are incredible. Um, it, it becomes a mythic underworld, right, Angeline? It's, it's, and then at some point, Joe is almost like a guide to this, you know, he's, he's the Virgil figure. Even Especially he's a, with yeah. the drink, the I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's moon, almost moon juice, like, yeah, yeah, the moon juice. You know, it's it's like this elixir that will take him to another spiritual level almost. Yeah. And I like the idea that the regular world is what becomes the underworld right. for like half of the day. Like, that's also a really interesting idea to explore. Mm-hmm. I guess sort of like uh, Jack of Shadows is a, is a little is a little like that, right? Although that's literally a hard dividing line. It's not something that is a transition in time. It's just literally a transition between this is the night world, this is the day world. Yeah. Um, but that idea of these sort of dualities, but this one is just rolling over something that's completely familiar and turning it into something completely mythic, right? This is Midtown Manhattan, the center of world commerce, right? And publishing and all these other things. And then at a certain time of day, boom, it becomes this mythical underworld. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate like that that weird speakeasy as like a take on the the D and D tavern. If we did that instead of your typical rowdy, uh, you know, Ren Fair tavern, I think that that's really fascinating. Yeah, I think the atmospherics is what I would take more than say Mecky or like the sewing machine warp drive. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> But I also feel like Mechie would be a great one to throw into, like, especially like a, a Mechie gone mad after a millennia or yeah. several after several millennia. Yeah, um, that would be great for like a Gamma World or uh, Mutant Crawl Classics game or something that was kind of born like a Dying Earth style fantasy game. That sure, could be sure. really fun. Right, because it's almost a Deus. Well, it's, no, it's literally a Deus Ex Machina. Right, it's a god in a machine. <laughs> right, Mechie. So. Yeah, one thing that I also really liked about um, the way that Frederick Brown wrote our protagonist, Keith Winton, is that Keith, somebody who makes mistakes, recognizes that he makes mistakes, 
um, learns from them, um, sometimes makes the right choice, but does it accidentally. Like the whole thing where like he leaves, the, like he's thinking about leaving the money on the the windowsill and he doesn't. And at first he feels like that's a big mistake, but then later he, d- he d- determines that actually, no, that was really good that he didn't do that. So he accidentally did the really, really smart thing. And I think it's neat to have a protagonist, especially in this era of science fiction and fantasy, that isn't a goofy, bumbling buffoon and isn't a total like Mary Sue, Gary Stu kind of character. We've got somebody who's kind of like relatably, um, like he makes mistakes. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And how does that, uh, how do you create a, a protagonist, you know, effectively? Um, it's it's easy to go to either extreme, right? What what were your thoughts? I mean, you have a, a tripartite uh, protagonist in your stories. Um, so, what are your thoughts on how you go out creating protagonists as a storyteller? I have been wondering about this myself because looking back at the stories, you know, our our trio of protagonists are. Kayla, who is a small but tough swordswoman, her girlfriend Imka, who is a scribe and actually also a forger, and Sebastian, who is really starts out as the sidekick of Kayla. He is a teenage con artist. And I I wonder a lot about where Sebastian really came from, because in Imka's case, because of the world that she comes from and its similarity with the sort of northern Dutch landscape of Remco's childhood. Imka emerges out of her circumstances in that she is someone who has grown up in a lot of isolation. She's grown up with a disability. And so she is some she has survived in a very threatening world and she has all the limitations and all of the potential that that implies, you know, whenever she goes out into the wider world. Kayla is very tough because she's had to be because she is a small woman who people will always underestimate doing a very physical, very dangerous job. And I think that came out of our frustrations just with how, you know, the traditional sword and sorcery figure of, you know, the big, tough, white, straight guy. And we wanted to do something different. But once that character exists, you're doing two things at once. You're both devising them and uncovering them. You gradually realize, and I think with Sebastian especially, because Sebastian really emerged from the fact that Kaylin needed to have a contact in the city, somebody who would try to get one over on her, but who she would see through, and then they would become unlikely companions. There are times whenever we will sit around and we'll discuss things. Like, I mean, we have this idea about these characters. We want to follow them all the way through their lives and to drop in on them when they're in their 40s and see what's going on with them. And we realize that there's times whenever we will sit around saying, you know, we're doing it by instinct a lot of the time. And I think that instinct is actually quite undervalued in creating characters. You know, obviously... There are lots and lots of kind of, there's so much advice out there. And I guess this it's similar to our feelings about world building. You know, there's so much advice out there about creating characters. You know, you'll get kind of fill-in sheets as, as in D&D where you can, you know, where you can have prompts and inspiration. And those things can be really terrific. But also sometimes I think sometimes the things that your subconscious offers will have an emotional truth to them that will really work. Mm-hmm. I think your point to instinct is good too, because I think Keith is, it is a partly about his instincts, right? His instincts that are for, I mean, they're formed by all these other things, but he's, all the things add up to him having to act on these instincts because it's a world that he doesn't have perfect knowledge of, right? And so he has to 
a time to rely on his instincts. Um, it's like, if I was a storyteller, right, which he is, or like, you know, or a failed storyteller, because he's an editor, <laughs> right, what would I do? <laughs> right? You know, um, how would I, how would this world work? You know, um, I as and again, it's slowly revealed that he's probably a veteran. So like, oh, this is how I would do things, you know, how I would, you know, get the lay of the land, uh, you know, as a as a veteran, you know, and, a, and I like this slow reveal about Keith, these things that you find, because at first, he's just this glib, sort of, uh, you know, upper middle class white guy who happens to be in publishing, right? And then to see these depths that are uh, un, un, unrolled, as you say, um, with the world and the characters that we get to see, but, you know, from him. Um, anyway, so. And I like this idea you mentioned, Angeline, of, of diving into the characters, but sometimes you're like, no, we can't go there yet because this, this character hasn't earned this thing that, <laughs> you know, this aspect of their personality yet. We have to discover that somewhere else, right? Well, I think it's this, you know, different people have different ways that work better for them in terms of figuring out how they want to tell a story. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are outliners. They like to outline the entire story first and then actually go through and then actually write that out. Other people like to, you know, just start from the beginning and start writing and see where the story takes them. And I tend to fall in the second category myself, which is also why I think generally in my games, I'm also totally fine with just like saying yes to whatever and seeing in which direction the story takes us. Because I'm fascinated by the way that these things kind of happen organically. And I'm personally somebody who's very comfortable with the idea of introducing a mystery that I don't fully understand yet myself either. And then allowing that mystery to be solved um, also through with um, also via the input of my players. You know, if once I start hearing ideas that they're having about what might be what's really going on, then that can help inspire me to be like, oh yeah, I like that thing they said. I'm going to go ahead and incorporate that now into what's really going on. Right. Or, oh, I think that one's fun. I'm not going to make it that, but I think this is going to be a really fun thing for them to explore that further and for them to discover why that's not the thing that's going on. Yeah, I, 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 I like that idea a lot. Right, right. I mean, nine times out of 10, it's probably more interesting than anything that at least I could have thought of, right? <laughs> as far as our players, because you have the collective of seven, eight, nine players with their brain power and their, you know, wild yeah. imaginations that they have. Uh, and it's happening over time. And naturally, you know, it's, it's, these are ideas that are marinating and progressing in their own direction mm -hmm. rather than something that I'm just kind of forcing myself to do while I'm writing an outline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you find um, both of you at, after a while that it's organic, it's taken on a life of its own. This is the thing that would happen. It's not me doing this anymore. It's this thing. This is what, uh, you know, Imka or Kayla or Sebastian are doing, or this is what my character in my game is doing because that's them. That's not me anymore saying that this is the thing that's happening. It's coming through my mouth, but it's not me, you know? I think so, definitely. I mean, they characters take on a life of their own. And sometimes you just kind of have to get out of the way and say, okay, well, let's... Let's go with that. And sometimes one thing that we notice also with co-writing is that you end up with something that isn't, it's not either one of you. Often whenever we look back, we aren't always sure which of us an idea came from because in the end, the story is bigger than either one of us. And I think that that's very true in gaming as well. You know, it's that, you know, I mean, things emerge from the collective of the personalities and the experiences and what, what all those people bring literally to the table. Yeah, like Jeff, I hadn't heard about your seventy foot Len in the last time, so like, you know. How did that... Oh yeah, and that's something that happened completely by accident too. Because one of the things that I have in my game is I, um, I have these like random tables for um, 
for um, like these random equipment tables. And I've taken so many people's D100 tables from the internet and just thrown it all into one giant spreadsheet. And one of the beautiful things that I love about Google spreadsheets is the randomized range feature. Love it. So whenever somebody like is like searching through a shed, for example, I'll just do, do a shuffle on that list and see what kind of random thing they find. And um, we had a character do exactly that. Uh, Magda Strike was going through the shed and she and I, and I shuffled to see what the most interesting thing in that shed was. And the thing just said a 12 foot tall statue encased in glass with the following um, written at its base. And the thing that was written at its base was Vladimir Lenin, but it was like in um, the Russian alphabet. And so I explained to like, you know, the player, like what, what he's found. And he's like, oh, okay, um, that's not something I need. I'm going to go ahead and just throw it on the ground and have the glass break. And I was like, okay, fantastic. So then what I did is I wrote six things that might happen. And then I rolled a D6. <laughs> and one of those things was that it becomes giant and starts walking around. <laughs> and that's the thing that I happened to roll. So then I rolled to see how giant it grew. And I, I ended up rolling really high. So now it's 70 feet tall. <laughs> so now we've got a 70 foot tall Vladimir Lenin in our Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, that's a, a very real part of this campaign, all because of um, like random dice rolls and just everybody saying yes to it. So it's ridiculous, but it's also like fun and interesting that we've like, what are we doing with this thing now? And it's, it, it's having a very real impact on the campaign setting. There you go. <laughs> now, are you going to have to go back and like read like Vladimir Lenin's writings just to make sure that you can play le- the 70 foot Lenin? Or is this an, is Lenin an NPC or a, a PC? Oh, no, this is an NPC. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, that's funny. I, cause I actually, I don't know a ton about Vladimir Lenin. So I did watch a couple of like YouTube videos and uh, <laughs> filled myself in a little bit more on Vladimir Lenin. But, I'm, but, but again, I'm also fine with it being totally historically inaccurate. Right. And like here he is as the well, 70 foot tall he's giant. 70 foot Lenin. So yeah, yeah exactly. In a, fan, in, a, in a fantasy world, um, so he's got a bunch. So basically, what he's doing right now, there's a bunch of like 15 and 20 foot giants that he's now like trying to, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, liberate from the oppression of the little people. <laughs> so that's what he's presently doing. But anyways, <laughs> that's enough about that. So, um, um, Angeline, do you have any um, any remaining thoughts about what Mad Universe that we haven't had a chance to dive into? Well, I guess the one thing that did strike me was obviously as a woman, you look at this and you're thinking, what's it going to be like gender wise? And yeah. I, at the beginning, I was actually pleasantly surprised by Betty Hadley because, you know, we hear of it. She's an editor, too. It's not that, you know, she's some wannabe. She's a professional on a par with Keith himself. I would have loved for her to have had more to do in the book. But, of course, by virtue of the limitation that Keith is peeking into his version of what he imagines Joe Doppelberg's imagination is, he, you know, he's not picturing that Joe would have necessarily a very progressive view of Betty's life. So, you know, to an extent that's understandable, but I did, I did wonder, you know, what, what might've happened if, if for instance, it had been a femme fatale rather than, you know, his underworld contact that he ran into, you know, that's, that's one way that I could have seen it. Or the alternate version of the story. What if Betty Hadley had been the one thrown into this mad universe? Absolutely. Right. Right. And, uh, or what if he had been thrown into the world that he imagined Betty, Betty Hadley imagined? Right. As the editor of romance novels, right. 
<laughs> that would be. <laughs> that could also be interesting. Uh, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Right. But by and large, right. It was not, you know, it was of its time. It's a little dated in that regard, but it was not egregious in all the ways that um, some of this fiction can be. I mean, the, the whole space bikini thing is absurd and very funny, but it's also a commentary on like what fandom might be looking yeah. for as he, opposed he's, to he's mocking the fandom right or at least certain a- attitudes of fandom right rather than saying this is the thing that is desirable you know in our fiction in our world all right cool so angeline um are there any projects that you're working on that you want our listeners to be aware of well our new expanded paperback edition of the Redman and Devers is out now and so we are very excited for people to read that. We've added more stories, more art, and we hope that people will enjoy it. All right. And this is very on cool. uh, Amazon Worldwide as the best uh, sources? It is indeed, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, I had the pleasure of reading the original version last summer, and I do recommend people check it out. So, uh, yes, go check it out. Thank you. <laughs> right. And maybe we'll have to cover that on our show at some point. Indeed. I hope so. <laughs> awesome and if folks would like to find you online what's the best way to do that uh yes absolutely it is turniplanterns.wordpress.com lovely it's a uh, very informative long-form pieces on that the, the blog so i think um with aspects of uh mythology uh talking about uh northern european history so do check that out turniplanterns at uh, wordpress.com very cool. And Hoy, where can folks reach us? Right. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So our patrons are able to join us prior to these recordings for our patron book club. And before this recording, we were joined by Robert Coleman, Dan Alexander, Adam Styers, and Brandon Cruz. It was really fun having a conversation with the four of you. So thanks for joining us. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons, Robbie Fioto, Noah Green, Eric Hallstrom, Andrew Sternick, Dave Hotstream, uh, Joseph Hoopman, and Robert Stites. Thank you all so much for your support. Also, starting with episode 101, our patrons are helping us pick which books we are covering. And the polls are in. For episode 101, we are going to be covering Charles R. Saunders' Amaro. So I'm super excited for us to be covering that for episode 101. And when this episode drops, we are going to have the poll dropping for what we'll be covering for episode 105. And the options are going to be Stephen King's The Gunslinger, G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday a Nightmare, Clifford D. Simak's Out of Their Minds, and Toni Morrison's Beloved. So one of those four is going to be covered as our episode 105, and our patrons will be able to vote between those four and choose which one it will be. All right. So, Angeline, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really fun. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. It was an honor. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>